Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to an extra edition of the SITREP podcast from BFBS. If you're one of the thousands of people who served at the UK's headquarters in southern Afghanistan, Lashkar, you may remember a small space of tranquility and beauty at that base. A garden where flowers and fruits grew and birds came to rest. A wooden pergola provided shade where soldiers would take a break and have a chat. Sometimes it was the venue for meetings of senior officers or with local leaders. The garden was created by Shaistagul, known as the Gardener of Lashkar. I love the garden. From when I was a child, I, was, I used to love the garden, the flowers, and the gardening and all that. And I was very honest to my job when I was working with the British Army. Before my shift, we used to start. I was earlier to work and. Uh, trying to make my day busy and trying to trying to make a small heaven for the British army. Shyster spoke to Forces News to an interpreter in 2021 when he came to the UK. That interpreter was his son Jamal who'd worked with British forces. But in the months before that, Shyster's life had been under severe threat. He was on the Taliban's wanted list when they returned to power in Afghanistan. Other members of his family had already been killed. Well, now, a journalist who tried to help Shaisa get to the UK tells his story in a new book, The Gardener of Lashkar, the Afghans who risked everything to fight the Taliban. I've been talking to the author, Larissa Brown, and Shaisa's son, Jamal. Larissa, Jamal, it's really good to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, Larissa, first of all, can you tell me how you first met Jamal and what was going on in Afghanistan at the time? Yes, of course. So me and Jamal first came into contact in August 2021. And obviously during that time, uh, groups were withdrawing from the country. Jamal had been posting uh, on Twitter and various other places about his father, uh, Shaista Gull, a former gardener at the military base in, base in Lashkar And he was stuck in Lashkar as the Taliban uh, were taking over the province. And Jamal was really worried about his safety. And so I reached out to Jamal to ask about his father and what was happening and how I could help and could we write a story about his case. Uh, and then Jamal obviously got back to me and and then uh, we met a few months later uh, back in the UK. So tell us a little bit more about Shyster because he is the gardener of Lashkar. Yes, he's, a, he's an incredible man. Um, and what was quite amazing is the number of people that said to me that they could remember meeting Shyster in the military base. And they remembered his garden so well, um, because obviously during the war, it was the one place where they could go and, and sit and have a cup of coffee and uh, just feel like they're in an oasis of calm when, when there was a war obviously going around them. And Shyster uh, was a gardener there until 2014 when the combat troops withdrew from Helm. And after that, he remained in Lashkar and he was receiving uh, death threats during that period. He, you know, he really felt like his life was at risk. But then obviously that all culminated with the withdrawal in 2021. And then he really was facing the Taliban at, at his door. Yeah, I'll ask you a bit more about that a little later on and what unfolded. Um, Jamal, just wanted to ask you a little bit more about your father. Um, was he always interested in gardening and how was it he ended up working so closely alongside the British military? 
thank you very much for the opportunity. Um, well, you always loved the um, the flowers, the gardens, and the plants uh, uh, before he joined uh, uh, the, the British Armed Forces in, in, in Lashkar. After that, he's got a job, and then straight away, after a few years, basically, I, I managed myself as well to come and to be part of the uh, the Armed Forces. So um, it was it was amazing garden for, for the uh, troops in Lashkar. Did it ever occur to him that he'd be putting his life at risk by doing this? Well, of course. I mean, uh, we all understood that time that it is it is a risk uh, standing against your own people and supporting the, uh, the the NATO. This was a massive risk and we all knew that. You were very determined yourself to become an interpreter for the British forces. You even applied while you were underage. Why were you so set on doing that job? Well, uh, the, the first thing that when I was uh, when I was 17 that I joined um, the British Armed Forces, I mean, I, I used to love being uh, a member of the Armed Forces when they were traveling and basically patrolling in other villages. And um, and so I told that I need to join them. And uh, it's a, it's a sort of um, a service for for Afghanistan and basically helping the the NATO so I, I absolutely enjoyed my job and I'm proud what I did for the British people in, in Afghanistan. And were you prepared for the various dangers you'd face and how they would still be part of your life so many years later? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I as far as I remember, the first day when I joined, I mean, I asked them to send me to the most dangerous place. I still remember that. And I love to be in, in, in the front line. Um, and... I was there on the front line for 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 a couple of months before I get shot um, by the, by the Taliban. You mentioned uh, you got shot. Um, can you talk us through? I mean, your family suffered terribly as a result of, of of your closeness to the British military. Can you just explain what, what has happened? What what price you had to pay as a family? Well, our family has suffered from Taliban very badly over the last two decades. I mean, myself, I was targeted by the Taliban and I got shot two times in 2010 when we were on the front line. And then the Taliban had shot my other brother, Mahmoud, um, 14 times. He's fully disabled at the moment. And, and also they've killed my oldest brother, Rahmatullah, he was assassinated at front of the house. So, uh, and also I've lost my uncles as well. So, yeah, our families um, have suffered really badly from the hands of Taliban uh, because of our service for the Ministry of Defence. It's such an awful uh, tragedy that your families had to go through. Um, when you reflect on that, would you still do the job that you chose to do? Well, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't regret what I did and I, I, I love to join again the British Armed Forces. Um, I'm, I'm in just the process now to get my passport again and then I, I think I, I need to join again uh, the British Armed Forces. Right, Larissa, um, you, you get the call from Jamal to help out. Um, just talk us through how you were able to help the family and in particular Jamal's father, the gardener of Lashkagar. Ah, well, I played, um, you know, a very minor role in this, in, in, in Jamal's case. I mean, at, at the time I was receiving um, maps from a soldier who was on the ground in Kabul and he wasn't actually meant to be contacting journalists, um, but he was trying to show me where the Taliban checkpoints were. Um, and I was sending these on to uh, interpreters that I've been in contact with for years uh, to try and help them get into the Abbey Gate, which is what they, where they needed to be in order to get on an evacuation flight. Uh, so this was at the point, sorry to interrupt you, Larissa, but this was at yeah. the point where the Taliban had taken over, basically, and it was a, a yeah. crisis moment, wasn't it? Yes, exactly. Yeah. 
So the Taliban had taken over um, and all of the Afghans that I've been in touch with for years as part of a campaign that I was doing with the Daily Mail where I used to work uh, were contacting me, asking me how they can get out of the country. And at that time, the British and American troops were obviously flying a lot of evacuation flights out of Kabul and the interpreters were trying to get into the airport, but they didn't know how to do that. And so I was sending uh, anyone that I knew maps to try and show them where to go, uh, including a map showing where the Taliban were positioned that day, um, which I'd received from a soldier that wasn't meant to be contacting uh, me at all as a journalist. I remember sending Jamal uh, one map which did show uh, where that where um shyster get out um and i was also trying to raise shyster's case with anyone that i knew ministers former officers who were in touch with other senior officers in the ministry of defense and i also you know mentioned his case in the newspaper because i wanted to put pressure on ministers to actually help shyster uh, get out of the country and jamal um he did get out what was it like when you saw your father again well, it was uh, it was one of the greatest moments ever in my life. And the 23rd of August, when I first got an email from the Ministry of Defence that he has been granted and he should come to the uh, to the airport. And I remember I straight away made a phone call to Larissa and informed her. And it was absolutely amazing moment. And then until they will come back to uh, to the UK, it took another couple of months. Uh, because they could not make to uh, to the airport on the 23rd and 24th. And then after that, the flights were stopped. So they made their way to Islamabad, went to Pakistan. But yeah, there's there's absolutely no words. I don't know how to express my gratitude. I would like to say thank you from Larissa and uh, Major General Charlie Herbert and rest of the senior British military officers and the journalists. And can you remember the moment you saw him? Oh, yeah. Um, so um, when they first... Uh, um, came to the UK. Um, I was living in Coventry that time, and I, um, I didn't know that they're coming to Coventry. So um, it was, it was even time that my dad had called me and they said, uh, "We, we are in the UK now." And I said, "Where about in the UK?" So they, they didn't know where they are. Um, and then I said them to send your your location. So when they send location, I, I Google it. It was back six minute drive from my house <laughs> so mm-hmm. and then I went there basically mom came out my dad and my brothers even though there was a COVID restrictions as well uh, but it was it was an amazing moment yeah six minutes away that's just incredible after everything you'd all been through um how many family members are still in Afghanistan and are in danger and are waiting to come to the UK well, my my uncles who served more than us, they served from 2006 until the British troops, they drew down from, from a helmet. Two of them were chef um, for the British Armed Forces and the Afghan interpreters. They were working there and they're still in Afghanistan and they are under imminent risk. I tried my best to bring them here, but unfortunately they were rejected by the Ministry of Defence. And they said that they can't come to the UK because they're not uh, at risk. Um, so, um, yeah, um, unfortunately, I tried my best, but it didn't happen. So it's a sad moment for, for those who still stranded in Afghanistan. I was just going to say, um, Jamal's sister, who we, we call Salma in the book, um, she was beaten uh, by the Taliban because they discovered that 
she was hiding documents belonging to Jamal and Shyster that uh, confirmed their time in the British Army and photographs. Um, and actually, um, I'm sure Jamal will be <laughs> pleased to tell you she's just been told she will be able to come to Britain. Um, so that's great news for the family. That's fantastic. Another reunion on the way. Um, Larissa, when, when you hear these kind of stories, I think one of the things that... that um, it stands out is that people's lives and deaths hang on, hang on small things like like knowing you, someone being able to help, contacts, perhaps getting around an unwieldy system. That must be extremely frustrating for a campaigner like you. Oh, it's absolutely heartbreaking. The amount of people that are still contacting me that uh, are still trying to get to the UK or they're trying to get family members to the UK. And the problem is, is they don't really know the right people or know who to go to. And and the MOD's uh, Arab scheme, which is the scheme which they can come to Britain under, is it, just quite a confusing scheme. They seem to be letting in some family members, but not others. Uh, and it doesn't always make sense. And then there's all those people that actually didn't even necessarily serve with the British Armed Forces directly, but they might have served with um, a contractor and they're finding it even harder to get to Britain, but their lives are also at risk. You were in Afghanistan on the last British flight, which left Camp Bastion almost 10 years ago. How do your thoughts, Larissa, now compare to what you thought then about Britain's role in Afghanistan? Well, that's a that's a tricky question. Um, I, I, you know, I think you see see the work that the the armed forces did themselves. They operated, uh, you know, with honour, and um, you look back at that, and uh, you know, I just have admiration for those people that that did risk their lives to try and make Afghanistan a better place. Um, but of course, uh, when you look at it from a political level, it's just absolutely catastrophic, and the politicians have made a complete mess of it. And we shouldn't have been in this situation in the first place. We have been campaigning for interpreters uh, like Jamal to come to Britain from as early as 2015. And still in 2021, six years later, there were many interpreters whose cases were being ignored. They were being refused for completely ridiculous reasons. And it took, in, it took until then for those cases to be overturned. And for some of them, that time was too late. They'd already been, some of them had been killed. They'd had family members beaten. They'd been beaten. They'd had to flee uh, to third third countries. Um, and so I think if you look at this, this sort of policy overall over that time, it's been incredibly frustrating. What about you, Jamal? What's your thoughts? What are your feelings about Britain's involvement in Afghanistan, considering that the very high price that your family's paid for that? I mean, it is very, very sad and frustrating that um, if you look at the last 20 years progress that the British made in Afghanistan, um, there was a lot of positive changes came to Afghanistan over the last two decades. But unfortunately, everything has just gone so quickly, which we never, ever thought about this. So sometimes I'm thinking like they, they shouldn't go at the first day to Afghanistan to spend billions of pounds in Afghanistan, 457 British soldiers got killed in Afghanistan, millions of Afghans got killed, um, thousands of soldiers, Afghan soldiers got killed. It is, uh, I, th I think it was, it, was, it was the wrong decision that the British left Afghanistan in 2014, especially after uh, 2021 when the Taliban took the country. It's not just only my family um, has given massive sacrifices for the British people, for the British government. I mean, um, most of the Afghan interpreters and other work because they did talk the risk and to, uh, to assist the British in Afghanistan. But unfortunately, some of them still uh, are left behind with, uh, without any consequences. And I think it is the right thing now to take out those brave Afghans from, from the country because they are under imminent risk from the Taliban and they cannot work 
because if they uh, there's no absolutely no con- conclusive government in Afghanistan now, so nobody can get a job um, at the moment there. Uh, even if they go to any job for biometric, they're all details going to come up, and that's going to put more of them at risk. Larissa, do you know how many um, Afghan interpreters are still in Afghanistan who work with the British military and need to leave? We we know that there are 400 uh, Afghans that are eligible under the Arab scheme at the Ministry of Defence. So many of them uh, will be interpreters, but there will be a number of those that are also former Afghan special forces who worked alongside the Brits. So there are still a lot of people basically waiting and they are just the ones that have already been told that they're eligible. There'll then be thousands more that are obviously waiting to hear whether they can come uh, or not. Uh, And then there are also uh, 2,000 stuck in Pakistan in hotels. And some of them have been there for as long as 18 months. And and there is no sign of them actually coming anytime soon. I mean, um, I've got a massive list of these people that they have contacted me and they were directly employed by the British Armed Forces in Afghanistan. And I've got the names, their um, service numbers and everything. I've got the list. I've already shared that with the Ministry of Defence and they were rejected by the MOD. Jamal, how has your dad and the rest of your family adapted to life in the UK? It is amazing at the moment that we all, my my mom and dad, my brothers, um, that everyone, my wife, uh, we are together, and we are very excited for my sister and uh, and her children to come to the UK. And hopefully, that's going to take another couple of months, but we're very excited for for that as well. And what plans do you have for the future, Jamal? I mean, my my youngest brothers when they see basically my focus in the, in the uniform and basically they see um, that what my father did for the British Armed Forces, they're always asking me that we are trying to join the British Armed Forces when we grow up. And and myself, as I said before, so at the moment I'm still under recovery, but hopefully um, soon uh, this, is, this is the main target that I have to go back and join uh, for the British Armed Forces and do the best I can for this country. What do you hope for Afghanistan? Uh, well, absolutely. Um, there's no hope for, for Afghanistan. I mean, um, the Taliban are very, very strong at the moment. And, and, and as far as I know, it's a, it's a massive threat for the Western countries uh, because at the moment, the Taliban are training thousands and thousands of uh, young children and young people to watch their mentalities and work um, and basically train them um, for the for the future conflict and and to use them as a as a suicide attackers. So the Taliban are quite strong at the moment. I I don't think there will be nobody could go back to Afghanistan to fight with the Taliban because thousands of tanks, ammunition, weapons, and everything handed over to the Taliban. It's a massive risk um, for for the Western at the moment. Just, just a final question um, to you, Jamal. Um, has your dad got a garden in the UK? Is he enjoying gardening here? Uh, well, it is not the same as same as in Afghanistan. So, I bet. Uh, <laughs> I know. Um, it's um, basically he does got he has got the, a small garden from his uh, front of his property. Um, um, but yeah, he what he's asking all the time that he wants somewhere to be a bigger um, space that he can grow as much as he likes. <laughs> I bet he does. Uh, Larissa, you been to see it? Are you going to? Any plans to? No, but I would love to go and see his garden. Um, <laughs> I, I, I will. I will make it my mission to go up to Scotland. <laughs> so be, the next book will be The Gardener of, where is it exactly? <laughs> <laughs> like Man and Shire.
that has got a ring to it thank you to both <laughs> of you for joining us today it was great to talk to you Jamal Barak and Lisa uh, Larissa Brown thank you so much and Larissa's book uh, The Gardener of Lashkar The Afghans Who Risked Everything to Fight the Taliban is out now published by Bloomsbury News, Discussions and Analysis This is Sitrep <laughs>